Hey, before we get into the episode, I want to update you guys that we just announced Starting Small Summit 2024. We launched Starting Small Summit in 2022 with an amazing panel of founders. We flew in for a live event that carried on to 2023, and now we're excited to do our third annual event this year in the Midwest. So make sure to click the link in this description so you can find more information on that and find more about our speakers and enjoy the episode. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Bria Hamill, founder of the renowned self-name Bria Hamill Interiors and Brick and & Lou, an e-commerce collection of furnishing, decor, and one-of-a-kind pieces. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Bria Hamill of Brick & Lou. Bria, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Of course. So I'd like to start out with your upbringing. Um, where did you grow up, and what would you say your childhood was like? Yeah, so I was actually born in Houston, Texas. My mom was in residency, and um, so I lived there for about seven years. Um, mm. But my parents were originally from Minnesota, so um, once she was done with school, she moved back to Minnesota, and um, I spent the rest of my childhood here in the cold north. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, what was that like growing up? Um, did you have an entrepreneurial mindset, lemonade stands, yeah. or was athletics a part of your, <laughs> your childhood? What was that like? Yeah, so my father actually is third generation. Um, he's the CEO of um, a family business, third okay. generation. My great-grandfather started. My brothers are now there as part of the business, too. So um, I think that it's always been something that's been yeah. in my blood. Um, and then my mother is a doctor, so I grew up with she didn't own the business. She was part owner of the clinic, but I grew up with definitely the work ethic from her and the entrepreneurial spirit and just like understanding that um, these these jobs, these businesses are part of our everyday life. So um, I've sure. just always had a business mind. Amazing. I saw you went on to study at the University of Kansas. Um, what did yeah. you study there and what led you to go to Kansas then? Yeah, so um, I it, I always said, said it was my safe school because I didn't apply to any schools in Minnesota um, for college. I knew that I wanted to go away and kind of experience a different part of the country. And, of course, I ended up still in the Midwest. But um, I, I loved it because I was at a seven-hour drive from home, um, just far enough where I felt like I was still doing something on my own, but I could get home if I needed to. Um, the climate is definitely warmer than it is here, up here in Minnesota. Mm. Um, and it was just a really great, like, big state school that um, I had always gone to private schools my whole life and been in that smaller community. And I really had a desire to go to a school that just had a lot of school spirit and um, just was like one of those old classic schools that everybody talks about. So I think that's why I ended up choosing KU for school. Um, I went to school there for business, actually, mm. um, thinking I was going to be a fashion buyer. Um, and about halfway through, kind of decided that if I wanted to be a fashion buyer and really have a strong career in that, I would probably have to move to one of the coasts, um, or at least Chicago. And I didn't know if that's what I wanted to do. So um, yeah. some of my friends had kept mentioning that they thought I was good at um, interior design. And I definitely had a passion for it, definitely more on the DIY basis with a very small college budget. Um, but I decided uh, my junior year to switch majors and to go into interior design. So mm. um, I, I, I knew I wanted to do residential, so I switched to the residential program. Yeah, I, I would love to hear kind of the genesis of your interior design 
passion. You said your, your friends yeah. mentioned that. Did you do some at your house or what was that like? Yeah, it was, I mean, it started off with, you know, in college, the dorm room, you know, I yeah. cared about the bedding matching and everything, everything going together. And I'm very much a type A organizer. So everything was tidy and neat. And then um, my sophomore year, we ended up renting a house for seven of us. Mm. And um, my bedroom was all color coordinated with matching fabrics and the furniture. I had to make some of it at home because, of course, I didn't have the money to buy new furniture. But I was DIYing old doors and turning them into headboards and all of that. So oh I was just really into it. I was always buying the Martha Stewart magazines and the home decor shelter magazines. Um, it was just something that I think my mom definitely dabbled in it while um, it was kind of a hobby for her when mm. she wasn't working. And so I grew up in wallpaper and furniture stores with her. Um, but I just all of a sudden, I didn't never had really thought about making it my career until more and more people started talking mm. to me about it. I love it. So kind yeah. of walk us through the career of an interior designer. So when you when you finished college, what is did you, you kind of took that traditional route. I saw you worked at many firms. So kind of yes. right after college, yeah. what, what did that experience look like for you then? Yeah, so I was lucky and interior design schools do a really great job of this, of having um, their um, internships be really like focused on what you want to do when you get out. So I um, did a lot, a, a lot of internships with a residential firm, a commercial firm, um, just trying to figure out and confirm for sure what I um, wanted to do when I got out. So when I, when I did that, um, I, my last job out of college and kind of my, I stayed with them after I graduated was um, working for a firm that did both. And she mm. also had a storefront. So I felt like I kind of got to experience the best of all worlds. Um, and that's when I really decided that residential is kind of, you know, I worked on all the projects, but my heart was really with the residential. I love the connections that you have and really making um, a change for the people, you know, that you are working with directly versus commercial spaces tend to be a group of people. You might not ever meet the people that are using the spaces. Um, I just like the personal interaction that I got with the residential design. Um, so I worked there for a couple of years and then I ended up moving back to Minnesota about two years after I graduated and knew I just wanted to be closer to family and, um, you know, people as cold as it is here in Minnesota, we tend to stick together and move home. So um, I started working for a couple of um, furniture stores here and it, that was an interesting experience and not a path that I thought I was going to go down, but I really didn't have a connection to the design world here. Um, mm. And so it was a nice way to kind of get my foot in the door and understand, like, what are the opportunities here? Who are what? Who are potential clients? Um, and just really get to meet new people. So I worked at Ethan Allen in Thomasville for about six years um, wow. before I um, went and worked for another, like, high-end residential designer. And then mm. once, I, once I worked for her, that's when I finally started my own company. Incredible. I would love to hear the stepping stone from your point of view when you, because you launched your self-named brand um, in, in 2012. So what vital stepping stones along your career do you think kind of influenced that decision to then branch off on your own? Yeah, there's been so many things that I look back on. You know, when you're, when you're in it and you're working and doing what you're doing, it's kind of hard to see the path sometimes or understand yeah. that you are on the path. Um, what, like I said, when I went to KU and was in business school there, 
that was a huge part for me because I understood and I had a passion for the business side of design. And I think so many people go into interior design because they're creative and they want to do all that creative work all the time. And when you get into interior design, you realize that it's maybe 10% creative and 90% business. So um, having that schooling and education um, under my belt really helped me. And then um, another big stepping stone, I think, was when I was working at Ethan Allen and Thomasville, I got into management there. Hmm. So I was managing the design centers for quite a while. And um, I was working on P&Ls and budget. We had a uh, budget every month that we had to meet and helping designers meet their sales goals. And it was very much sales focused. Hmm. Um, And again, like to have a successful design business, yes, you have to be a great designer and understand, have a look and be able to understand, you know, furnishings and construction and all that. But if you're not good at the business side, you're just not going to be able to grow a big, a good, solid, long-standing business. And For so, sure. I think that those things really helped me um, be able to do what I'm doing now. Mm, for sure. So, at the launch of uh, Bria Hamill uh, Interiors, mm. what did that kind of launch look like then? At at that first start, when yeah. you branch off on your own, yeah, the so, store, etc. Yeah. So um, it was interesting because I, when I decided that I was going to do this on my own, I was nine months pregnant with my first child. And Mm. that's not typically when you start a new business. Um, But I was really driven by the idea of not that I wanted to work less. I just wanted to be really the person in control of my schedule. I wanted to be able to spend time with him and, you know, coming from a family of workaholics and um, being really stuck with their schedules, I knew that this would be an opportunity for me to be able to have a little bit more control over that. So Mm. um, I started my company and basically had a child at the same time. So I kind of had two babies at once (laughs) and I started out of my house and it was really just networking, referrals, friends friends and family that started with me. And then... um, from there, just grew word of mouth. I um, ended up getting a nanny part-time, and then a year in, I had a full-time nanny, and I had an assistant, and I'm a big believer in organic growth. Um, I don't ever love to try to push anything, and so I kind of grew when I had the customers there and knew, like, okay, I don't have the capacity to continue doing all of this. I need somebody to help. Yeah. And then when I started to grow, I really thought about, like, what are the things that I don't love to do? And when I hired, instead of trying to replicate what I do, yeah. I hired people to do the things that I didn't love to do, such as accounting. Mm. Um, that was one of my very first hires was someone to help me with my books. Um, and then an assistant came and helped me with, you know, some of the tasks that I didn't have time for or that, you know, they were better at AutoCAD and doing some of the software programs. And, you know, I had been out of it for five, six years. So for them, um, it was really nice to have them. They were super efficient and trained in it. So just really like thinking smarter about who's going to be working with me and not feeling like I have to just repeat myself, but really having people that can Mm -hmm. kind of fill in the gaps for me. Certainly. So if you don't mind, uh, kind of paint the picture for listeners out there. So at launch as an interior designer who works on residential, is your customer base Mm -hmm. primarily local? What did that look like for you operations wise running by yourself? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely local. I don't know how people would be able to start and try and have goals of doing this um, out of state. Um, Now, with that being said, we're probably only 20, 30 percent local anymore. And most of our work is now out of state. Um, But that, again, was a very organic, wasn't planned, just kind of how the cookie crumbled. Um, Mm -hmm. 
but I, I tried to keep it as close as possible because the closer it was to my home or to my office, um, the more I could get done. I didn't spend so much time in the car and, you know, going back and forth. So um, it definitely started within my community and trying to let them know, you know, and I also said yes to a lot of things. Um, I took on a lot of work that obviously now we probably wouldn't take on, like picking a paint color for a room or a new mm -hmm. foyer light or um, consulting on exterior elevations. So, you know, at the time, I was just kind of like, I, I'll take what I can get and, you know, hopefully I do a great job for these people and then they'll refer me and that's exactly what happened. And then I would say like the big point of growth for me was um, someone that I actually had gone to high school with was building a new house and had saw that I had started my own business and asked me if I would help her pick out all the finishes for her home. Mm -hmm. And um, at the same time, the builder that she was working with was also a new company. And mm -hmm. so we kind of part, we had a, we really enjoyed working together um, on that project. And so we both were like, Hey, why don't we keep this up? Like that went really smoothly. The clients are really happy. And like, we're both new. Why don't we try and do this together? So he ended up using um, my company for all of the homes that he built. Wow. And he was, he started off and he was building, you know, 10, 15 homes a year. And so for me, that was like, kind of like free clients, yeah, you know, where, yeah, it was huge. And, um, we had a great rapport. So the clients really trusted our relationship together. And, um, I, I gained a lot of first time clients who became lifetime clients from that. And mm. I'm so grateful for that opportunity because now I don't not, that's not necessarily my path because now that we have a style and a way of working, it's really important to me that our clients know what that is and want that. Yeah. Um, instead of like, if you're paired with a builder and do all their work, then, you might not be the right fit for every single person's aesthetic. Yeah. And now be that I have 11 years under my belt, um, that's really important to me. Mm -hmm. But um, at the time, you know, it was a really great way to kind of grow my business and um, and be able to, you know, invest in overhead and invest in more employees because I knew I was going to have that work. Certainly. So you mentioned that a smaller percentage is local today. So what does uh, operations look like for you guys today and how do you manage um, say like national partners going forward. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we started off our very first project that was out of state was, um, a referral from a client who was also in a service business and had a client that was out of state and mm. we, they were very gracious in letting us kind of figure out what that would look like. Um, since then, now we have a very deep process of, um, how we're sourcing like a warehouse, you know, every project that we work on, we need to have a warehouse that's local to that project that, mm. to receive all the goods that we're ordering for them. And we have to have workrooms. So we need to have someone that can make window treatments and wallpaper and all of that. So, um, luckily in my, my network of designers, um, we all are very open with sharing those resources to each other. So normally if I get a project in a place that I haven't worked before, I can reach out to a designer friend and say, hey, we have a new project in your area. Would you mind sharing um, any workrooms that you would refer? And then obviously we always do the same when people reach out to us. We're mm -hmm. always um, open to sharing that. Um, and so that's really nice when you have th those people that are in your network because you know that they're not going to refer to you refer you to somebody that they don't trust because yeah. um, it's their reputation too. So we have that. Now, with that being said, we've done so much work in other states and most of the time we have worked in that area at some point. So yeah. we actually have like a whole resource document of the different vendors that we've worked with out of state. And then if we're building a house or that's a 
renovation of a project of a house, um, the builder, a lot of times the client already has the builder that mm. they're working with. And so we can lean on them too of like, have you worked with any wallpaper installers? Or um, a lot of times they have all of their own um, installers for obviously the flooring and all of that, lighting and electricians and plumbers and all of that. So um, we develop those relationships. And again, we document if they were a good relationship or not such a good relationship, you know, so yeah. every year our portfolio just gets a little bit better. I love it. So in 2018, uh, diving into Brook and Lou, and this is yeah. kind of an expansion of, yep. from service to product now, you guys launch as an e-commerce company. Uh, what inspired this transition? Um, I'm curious from the history of building your self-named brand prior. Yeah, so um, as BHI was growing as a design business, we certainly were getting a large following on social media. And one of the things that I noticed was that we were getting a lot of questions for our sources. So we would post a project on social media and then immediately we start getting asked, where's the carpet from? Where's the lighting from? Where's that accessory from? Where's the table from? And so um, as a business person, I kept thinking like, gosh, we're losing a lot of money by just like constantly sharing these sources and sending them to someone else to buy it from. Yeah. Um, so that was my business mind in me of like, how can we diversify our business and um, be more profitable? And so that was certainly a major part of why we launched Brook and Lou. And then the other part was I was noticing a trend within our clients of we tend to attract families who really want to live in their home. They they want a beautiful space, but then they also want to, um, you know, not worry about where their family is sitting during an event or where their kids are watching movies and how are they sitting on the furniture. They want to use every room in the, in the home. And so mm -hmm. um, we were constantly having to kind of make alterations to the furniture we were purchasing for them to make it even more durable. And mm -hmm. so I thought to myself, you know, if I'm having to do this for our clients, I know there's a plenty more clients out there that would love to have access to more product like this, yeah. um, that maybe they can afford the product we're selling, but maybe they can't afford the whole full service package of in hiring an interior designer to do it. So um, between those two ideas, I was like, it just felt like the right time to launch Brook and Lou. So Bro mm -hmm. Brook and Lou is a um, residential interior design e-commerce website that you can go on and shop and purchase these what we have now trademarked life-friendly furnishings. Mm. Um, furniture that the fabrics are either wipeable or cleanable, the the finishes on the furniture are um, more durable, stain resistant, water resistant, um, and we token, we tag every product page. If we consider it a life-friendly product, there's a stamp of, on that page showing that it's life-friendly. Um, and that's been really, it's been a really unique niche in the market that I think that um, people haven't tapped into, but you're seeing it more and more relevant in um, consumers shopping mm -hmm. as they just want, if their furniture is expensive, it doesn't matter where you shop anymore. Yeah. Furniture is expensive. And so if you're going to buy that furniture, why not buy something that you know is going to be, it's been tested and tried. It's coming from a reputable firm that's saying, hey, we've tried this. We would put it in our own homes. It's going to withstand the craziness of life. Mm. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of the background on Brook and Lou and how we launched. And so we've been, Brook and Lou has been um, around for five years now. Incredible. And we've, we're primarily e-commerce. E we had a retail brick and mortar store for about two years. Um, 
that we've recently closed, we're working on a bigger and better concept that'll be in person again in the next few years. Awesome. Um, and just navigating, you know, of course, Brook and Lou was launched right before COVID and we have all the crazy stories to tell with that, but um, it's been quite the adventure. So we're really excited for what's to come. I love it. Yeah. Before we get into kind of that 2020 shift, I'm curious, but yeah. when you guys launched, what did sourcing look like? What kind of products did you launch with? Um, I would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so um, I, I talk about this a lot, that I think that if you're going to get into this type of business, mm -hmm. in my personal opinion, I think that not, not having all pieces that you can shop somewhere else from helps you really grow quickly. Mm. Um, we, we are about 50% of products to Brook and Lou, and um, the other 50% are products that we've sourced from manufacturers that we really love that, to use in our design projects and things that people are asking for, but you could find it on another website. Um, so, and we, we launched with exclusive products. We hired an artist, a local artist here in Minnesota to design patterns for us that mm. we um, sell on fabric, on wallpaper, and we have ready-made pillows um, that are all life-friendly. And that has been probably our biggest category of sales for us since day one. Um, that is what we sell the most of, which makes sense that you can't buy it from anywhere else. And it's all that life-friendly pro products are really honing in on the niche, I think, is um, been really advantageous for us, but um, we we do feel like it's important for us to still have some of the product that isn't designed by us because it, yeah. it kind of helps fill our story. So when we're doing marketing and, um, you know, when we style a home for a photo shoot, to be able to say everything in the picture is shoppable on our website is really nice and yeah. it makes it a lot easier for our customers. Um, and so therefore, you know, having those filler pieces that isn't something that I'm necessarily creating and designing and owning, um, but just pieces that I know I have access to that we can source for our customers and not have to make them go on the wild goose chase um, has been really nice for them. Yeah, I'm not sure like if you could share this, but for those that aren't manufactured by by your team, do you guys mm -hmm. have like a referral program with these other brands or what is like a partnership? What does that look like? Um, so the products, well, twofold. If it's a product on Brook and Lou, obviously that's an easy source for us. For yeah. If you're looking at like our Bria Hamill interiors, social media, yeah. not all the products that we use for our design clients are a Brook and Lou product. That's yeah. something that it's a different level of um, price point for furniture and customization for our clients. Um, it's much more um, specific to their needs. Um, so we, if we're sharing a source for that, then most of the time that's just out, out of the goodness of our heart. Yeah. Um, but then Brook and Lou product is all product that we, if we sell it, we typically inventory it unless it's a furniture piece, then we're having it custom made for the customer still. Um, but we have a warehouse that we have all the inventory for. Love it. Getting into, yeah, COVID. So 2020, once that hits, interior design is everyone's at their homes. I, I'm assuming that e-commerce was on the rise for you guys, but at the same time, supply yeah. chain might've been an issue. So 100%. what did that look like overall for you guys? Yeah, so it was interesting. The first six weeks when it, like the true lockdown was happening, yeah. we were terrified, just as everybody else was. We had no idea what to expect. We kind of thought to ourselves, if no one's working, how in the world are they ever going to spend money mm. on this, you know, not necessity goods? Um, but quickly we started to see, as everybody did, that the more time people were spending in their homes, the, and they weren't spending money on the other things they had probably set money aside for, like travel. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people had extra 
cash that they were probably planning on spending in other places. And all of a sudden, they saw how important it was to have beautiful homes that they loved and felt comfortable in. Mm. Um, so I would say there was about six weeks of like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? To then, oh my gosh, how are we going to keep up? Yeah. Um, both companies definitely exploded. Um, we didn't have enough people to do the work that we needed to for design business. And we certainly did not have enough goods to keep up with the demand of the e-commerce site. Mm. Um, so we we pivoted quickly. And that's what's great about my team. And um, why I think we are, we are where we are today is that we were watching the numbers and watching the traffic and all of that um, very closely. And so when we started to feel the the market shift and every the demand come, um, we were able to pivot quickly. We ordered a lot more products of the pieces that we were inventorying and we expanded our office and our warehouse to have room for it. Um, mm. And then we went through the struggles for e-commerce of, you know, the dropship items yeah. of them saying, yep, it's in stock, the customer orders it and now it's not mm-hmm. in stock. And now you have to wait a year and a half to get it. Yeah. You know, so there was a lot of back and forth, a lot of customer service that came with it. And that was definitely the headache part of COVID for us. Mm. Um, now things have tapered off and things are definitely much more stable. We have a lot more product um, available to us. Our lead times aren't crazy, but it still happens that, yeah. well, you know, we check inventory every single week on anything that's a dropship item for us. Mm. And there'll still be those moments where we get an order, we place the order that day, and all of a sudden that product is out of stock mm. for six months versus the week before where it said they had it in stock. So yeah. that's just part of the business and something sure. that we have to deal with and manage for our customers. But for the most, most part, compared to what it was two or three years ago, um, things are much more stable. Certainly. Looking at uh, marketing for you guys today as an e-commerce interior brand, what do you find works best uh, for you guys, especially kind of branching off of your pre-existing consulting service business? What does that look like for you guys? Yeah, I mean, for us, marketing number one has always been Instagram. I think we were kind of born, the companies were born in the boom of Instagram. And so that's always been um, our best, best source of Um, referrals for us. With that being said, I've been talking a lot about how Pinterest is kind of making a comeback for us. Mm. So social media for sure is, I think, going to be, I don't see that changing for a while. Um, The different platforms, like for us, TikTok is not a thing that has, it's not necessarily our demographic. And um, even just my team, we're not necessarily that versed in it. And so it feels like a struggle for us to to focus on it. So we're still putting much more effort into Instagram. Mm -hmm. But Pinterest is a little surprise where it's been around forever. And I'm really starting to see a lot more people going back to using it for, they use it for kind of not just inspiration, but a way to organize their thoughts. Um, You know, Pinterest has reinvented themselves (laughs) creating these boards that can be private now. So a lot of our clients, you know, when they're dreaming about a home that they might not start for two or three years, they're starting to use those private Pinterest boards to organize their thoughts and Mm. capture all those ideas. And we're seeing a lot more. And when clients are reaching out to us that they're saying, well, when I was on my Pinterest board looking at all my inspiration, I realized that 90% of the pictures I was saving were yours, you know? And so it's a nice, easy platform for us where it's very organic again, and we can post our work and um, interact with people, but it um, doesn't feel so pressured and doesn't mm. feel like, oh, we have to post every single day and we have to, it's just a much more natural um, platform for us. So we're mm-hmm. really excited to you know, do more with Pinterest. Yeah, certainly. 
taking some of that feedback and also looking at your customers historically, what would you say is the main demographic? First, main demographic, and then also, do you see a percentage of just at-home consumer, and do you see pur purchasers being designers themselves today? Yeah, that like? um, yeah, that's a great question. Our demographic, age-wise, is um, in the early or the late 30s, early 40s, up to m maybe mid 50s. Um, Location-wise, they're everywhere, and Minnesota is certainly not our number one location. Actually, New York is. Mm. Um, and then, um, as far as our shoppers. We have been blown away by our trade program that we launched about two years ago for Brook and Lou okay. um, and the number of designers that are shopping with us. I think if you are a new designer or a designer that is a solopreneur and doesn't want to have a big team and you just want to be able to serve your clients and be one-on-one -on -one with them, um, using, a, using companies like us um, where you can still get a nice discount, but you have kind of a team behind you that's doing all the ordering for you, the tracking, we're managing all the shipping for them. Um, I'm seeing a lot of designers lean into that, and it's nice because they're they're not battling that whole getting shopped by your customer. Your mm -hmm. customer might have the customers might be the ones bringing them to us. Yeah. Um, and you know, but we still make it so that they can make profit on selling our product. You know, mm -hmm. we don't offer the same discounts to our customers as we do to our trade members. Yep. And we really try and help be that back end support to them because a lot of them don't have big teams to do it. So we mm -hmm. kind of act as their team for that. For sure. Looking at product expansion uh, for Brook and Lou, what does that look like when you guys want to add a new product or a new line? What is that process overall? Yeah, so we have, um, I have a person on my team that really helps support me in this. Mm -hmm. um, we have those private Pinterest boards for ourselves too. We use it as a company as well. And yeah. we're constantly saving images of things that we come across as we're you know, in the market and traveling. Um, a lot of times we'll save antiques pictures of antiques or a pattern that we saw somewhere like on an old wallpaper or something and um, just kind of idea boards of things that really inspire us and it's a nice place to kind of dump where you don't know what you want to do with it but you know you don't want to forget about it yeah. um, so we we when we're ready to launch a new product or you know like we might be working we tend to work on launches in um, a calendar a, a cyclical calendar so we have spring launch a summer launch um, a fall launch, and then the holiday launches. Mm. And um, so when, they say, we're working on a spring launch, we'll say, okay, I think we're ready for to add two or three more patterns to our collection. Um, so we can go to those old those folders and look at those old pictures and say, like, what do we feel like we're missing in our in our offerings and where do, where do we see the trends going right now? What are the color palettes that maybe we don't have that we're starting to use as a design firm and we want to bring to Brook and Lou? Mm. Um, and then from there, we set up meetings with our artists or the manufacturers and start talking to them about um, what our ideas are. And, you know, they, they poke holes in the products too of like, okay, that that concept is great, but it's not going to be supported very well. We need to put a, a leg here or a stretcher there, you know. So yeah. we really work closely with the manufacturers to make sure it's a solid product. And then from there we get into they normally do samples for us. They send them to us so we can sit on them, test them, see them in person. And then um, we send the f final tweaks and then they have the product made. Mm. Um, and then we have to photograph it and receive the final product so we can include it not only in a product photo but also um, including it in a lifestyle image because yeah. we have found that when we have lifestyle images and products are shown in a room, I think customers are just much more yeah. open to using it in their space because they can kind of understand the scale and the finish and all of that better.
for sure. Yeah, as a consumer myself, I would say I resonate with that for sure. Yeah, uh, definitely. So, Bria, I like to conclude each episode with this. Um, if yeah. you can share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, maybe something yeah. you've learned or regret along the way, what would that be? Yeah, I would say um, my biggest thing is to, when you have big ideas, don't be afraid of them. But for me, I'm, I think it's so important to document these ideas, create vision boards, and then really kind of treat it like a business. Even if it's, it doesn't matter what type of idea it is or what you're expanding on, treat, treat it like a business, write a business plan for it or poke holes, the pros and the cons of the idea and what, what might be some of the things people would love about it, what might be some of the things people don't love about it. Um, when we launched Brook and Lou, we did this and I think it really helped drive the energy behind the company and get everyone that was on my team on board um, because we had kind of already poked all the holes. So when we had the business plan written and we knew um, exactly who we were talking to as a customer and exactly where we wanted this business to go, it allowed us to kind of like get that out of our heads and then just focus on the business. Yeah. Um, so really, really treating every big idea as a business idea and a business, putting a business plan to it, I think um, kind of takes the stress and the pressure off of you. Mm, for sure. Well, Rhea, thank you so much for taking the time. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Brook and Lou at brookandlou.com. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small on social platforms and make sure to subscribe to our email so you don't miss anything on Starting Small Summit, more podcast episodes, or our online blog. You can find that link in this description.